Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Stay ahead of the game and advance your career with continuous learning opportunities for Azure cloud professionals. Solveto EduHouse, learning as a lifestyle. Start your journey now, eduhouse.fi slash cloud pro. I'm Tobias, I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias, not many might recall from this podcast, but I used to be a semi-professional rock climber for, for about 10, 15 years. And I've since packed up my gear. It's stashed away in the storage someplace, mostly because of some injuries I got when I was younger during rock climbing as well. So anyway, the weather in Finland as of right now has been super challenging. It's cold, it's snowing, it's raining, it's, it's slippery. And I'm now thinking of getting my climbing gear out from the storage, putting it back on, climbing on the roof of the house, it's about 10, 12 meters, to clear up the solar panels. But I'm not entirely sure if the risk-reward ratio is right. So let me think for a couple of more weeks and maybe the snow will melt away. <laughs> yeah, let's think about that until May when the snow yeah. is starting to disappear. <laughs> I, I think that's a, it's a dangerous road to take, but I mean, you have the skills to climb, so why not? On the other hand, I, I did hear about someone having a service for cleaning your solar panels where they, depending on how tall your building is, of course, they have like a truck with a thing coming out of the truck and there's a guy or a lady on this thing and they have like a hose spraying with some kind of solvent that removes it. Not oh, entirely wow. sure how great that is for the actual panels or for the building because it's not just water, right? It contains something just like... Uh, the washing fluid on the car, maybe. Don't know. Yeah. Anyway, on my end, I decided to not get a new coffee machine. And I, I know, I know if you're a common listener to this show, we've gone on and off on our coffee machines throughout the years. I stopped drinking caffeinated coffee recently, and I still do enjoy a, a decaf cup now and then, but it's not really the same. So like the caffeine made me a bit stressed and anxious in various situations. Maybe obviously like a lot of us, we had too much coffee at once, but in tea, the caffeine is fine. So now I'm perhaps looking at some fancy type of tea appliance instead, just to kind of fill the void of my morning routine, because I really enjoyed making a manual espresso or a cappuccino and make this really great coffee. It just doesn't sit as well when you make a decaf. And I mean, the taste is there, but you don't obviously get the same kind of effect from a decaf coffee. From a tea, however, you do get a slight uh, increase in, in the caffeine, and that's just enough to kind of boost your day. Anyway, super random, but that's top of mind. Sounds like a nice challenge. I've, I've done that a couple of times, switched to tea, but it's, it's a struggle. I need my morning cappuccino with real caffeine. <laughs> Alrighty, so today we will be talking about security in the Azure Well Architecture Framework, or WAF. And previously we've done several episodes on WAF, on the pillars, reliability, cost optimization, operational excellence, performance efficiency. Toby, can you remind me, is this the last pillar security that we're doing today? Did we do all of the others? Yeah, we did. So we, we did the four ones you just mentioned, and today we're doing the security one. And we kind of waited with that one just to see how the others were received. And it seems like this topic in general, anything well architected, seems like a very hot topic these days. 
So uh, yeah, we just wanted to take the security pillar for spin. Um, you know, briefly talk about what it is, what we can expect from that type of guidance, how we can use it, and how we can use the Azure Well-Architected Framework to kind of strengthen our security posture. So that's really what the episode is about. It's about how to use the guidance or more, what can you find in this guidance and why is that relevant? Sounds good. And and in my experience, I use the security pillar in VAF quite often. I would say on a weekly basis, I go there to double check on something to get ideas, to get inspiration on certain topics around security. And for me, it's so packed. So all the other pillars, the four others in the well-architected framework, they are useful, of course. But security, I feel many of the, of the guidance listed in here, they are sort of like one-liners even. Do X, don't do Y. And while it's super easy to just add a bullet point, perhaps you're doing a presentation for a customer, it's super easy to put a bullet point saying, do X, the next question will be, so how do we do X? And <laughs> then you need to understand what you've been reading on, yep. on VAF in general. Yeah, and I, I think you are touching on a great point here. And you know, this comes into content strategy and strategies around how you know, we kind of position different types of content. And what I really love about this, and then like exactly what you say here, do X, it's easy to type and put those words on a page. But all of this comes from field uh, guidance. Like it comes from real customer projects. It's rooted in the field. So the guidance is good. But one thing to keep in mind, and I think we mentioned that in some of the other pillars as well, anything in Azure well-architected framework and the same with cloud adoption framework and the same with Azure Architecture Center, these areas, they're opinionated guidance which is, that means it, it's coming from the field, it's coming based on best practices with real customers from multiple angles, right? So it's consolidated feedback across the field. What I love about that is we can tell the story saying, consider X, consider Y, here's how you can do it. Here's a consideration, here's a recommendation, and here's a couple of links for you to achieve that. So really the, the juice of this content is not the 5,000 steps you need to to click through or deploy or run in your command lines to achieve something, but it's more why and what, like the considerations and recommendations around it. So exactly to your point there, it, it does have a, a lot of those one-liners, like do this because of this reason. And then there's just a link saying, here's how you can read more about actually doing that. But that's outside of the scope of, of WAF or the well-architected framework, which I personally like, of course. One thing that I'm doing while we're recording this, I've got the, the the WAF security page open on a browser next next to the notes and, and next to our video call that we typically do when we record this. And the amounts of of insights in the in 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 this guidance, it's amazing. So a quick example, and, and then we start going through the whole WAF securities. What I often use from WAF security. I go to aka.ms slash WAF, and then I click on security. There's the design bit. Under design, you have identity and access management, and there's a checklist. So it, it's about 10 items on a checklist. One of those is use managed identities to access resources in Azure. So super easy to just drop this on a PowerPoint or in a design. Yeah, let's do this. But then in the real world, you go and and perhaps audit a customer environment, they will say, well, we're not using this because we're using something else. 
we are using fixed service accounts and we are not using multi-factor authentication for those. This is a problem. It's easy to say, well, the checklist sort of tells you to use managed identities, but what's perhaps not missing from here, but it's not evident is how do we get there? And that's why you need the sort of full understanding of all of the five pillars. And this is just, just surfacing the wisdom for you. You need to do X, but then it's up to you to decide how do how do I do X? What's the best approach for this particular project? Yeah, and and that's great. I, I think it's great we're taking this step back because exactly this example, if you go to the pillar for security and you go to the checklist for identity and access management, a note on the checklist, because I took a look at all, all of those as well, everything on the checklist exists in the content. So if you do find a one-liner there saying, use managed identity, period. There's no room for, for anything else, right? Just do it. Obviously, there are considerations around that as well. So if you drive you know, further down into the content and you go into the authentication page, for example, it's going to have a section saying, use identity-based authentication. And then it's going to ask you questions like, how is the application authenticated when communicating with Azure platform services? And then you get a bunch of information around that considerations, things to, to think about and like challenge your thought process. And has a bunch of different questions, like what kind of authentication is required by the application API and how is the user authentication handling the application? And like are authentication tokens cached securely and encrypted when sharing across web servers, stuff like that. So you have the checklist with a one-liner, but to feed the understanding of that one-liner, you still have the rest of the content, which is really, really tangible guidance. Exactly. And uh, when we talk about the design principles and sort of tying that back to this sort of checklists. One of the items in a checklist is you need to set up Azure Active Directory conditional access, but it doesn't really state how specifically do you need to set that, set that up. So we've talked about conditional access during zero trust in one of the previous episodes. There's a lot of functionality. There's a lot of design time choices or decisions you have to make depending on the requirements and the environment and the user profiles and whatnot. So again, it's easy to say use X, use conditional access, but this single sentence itself could result in a, in a 50 day engagement project with a customer just to get it right. And then you get to the next bit, which might be more work again. Yeah. So, so the design principles that WAF security is following and what I feel we try to underline here as well when we walk, walk through what's available in here is that you don't need to know everything about everything, but you need to understand the opportunities and the possibilities and the WAF security gives you the extracted wisdom on individual topics. And then it's up to you to decide at what depth do you want to implement these different capabilities. And exactly to your point there, when I was uh, you know, head of technical operations and, and security and did all this stuff in, in a different company, conditional access was a thing we talked about a lot. And I, I relied on WAF guidance for some of the things I was working on like every day. And it does have, like for conditional access, it has this one-liner. And then if you drive in, dive into the content, just like with the other point, there's a, a little bit there. It's like two best practices, manage and control access to corporate resources, and then a link. like read more over here and the same like block legacy authentication. We all know we should do that. And then there's a link to how and why to do that. And I think this is kind of the the key 
to WAF because it's very clean and consistent in being used as a true framework. It doesn't contain all the steps to achieve it. It's more thought-provoking. Think about doing this, and here's the reason why you want to do that, but then how to do it, you go to the specific product documentation and you figure that out. So that also means it's a lot easier to digest and read through the entire WAF than it is for some other frameworks out there. Agreed. So WAF security sort of, if, if I count correctly, it has like three major areas. It has design, build and deploy, and monitor and remediate. Uh, let's start with design. Any any thoughts on this, Toby? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, there there are these kind of three big, big areas. And web security, the design area, covers a couple of sections for governance, identity and access management, networking, data protection, applications and services. So governance, that covers topics like GRC, so governance, risk and compliance, which is a super favorite topic of mine, especially in my previous role. I worked a lot with that. It was super fun. You also prioritize where to invest the available resources, like financial resources, people resources, and time. That's all part of governance. Then there is guidance for identity and access management that we just briefly touched on as well. And there you get some security assurance through like identity management, like uh, using authentication and authorization security principles and you know, using them the right way. You have the networking area, um, like placing controls on network traffic originating in Azure between on-prem and Azure hosted resources and also traffic to and from Azure. The data protection area of the design section covers things like uh, classifying, protecting, and monitoring sensitive data using access control, encryption, logging, stuff like that. And then the application and services covers like identifying and classifying business critical applications, performing application threat analysis, uh, securing PAAS deployments or platforms as a service deployments, and learning about the security advantages and also disadvantages of using uh, platform as a service, uh, how to secure application configurations and dependencies and stuff like that. And now I, I just had a new episode idea when I said, uh, you know, the advantages and disadvantages of platform as a service. Notes to self and notes to everyone tuning in might be interesting to have an episode on the different advantages and disadvantages, speci specifically security advantages and disadvantages for various types of services or hosting models in, in the cloud. But that's kind of what's in the design security area. So you also mentioned build and deploy. What What's in that one? So yeah, build and deploy, that has three major topics. So governance considerations, infrastructure provisioning, and code deployments. And each one of these, I feel, are major topics. Governance considerations like how do we define CI, CD, continuous integration, continuous deployment roles and permissions and access management? Who has access to do what? How do we limit the scope of execution? Perhaps you have an automated pipeline, for example. Infrastructure provisioning, infrastructure as code. How do we do this? How do we secure this? Where do we store secrets, credentials, keys? Do we store those uh, within the pipelines? Do we store those in a text file? Perhaps not. How do we use Key Vault for this? And how do we later on, how do we implement and deploy security fixes, patches, and so on? And the last bit is code deployments. How do you involve, perhaps you have a separate security team as part of your DevOps process. How do you involve them in the code deployment? 
And I feel when we did the last or, or the previous four math episodes, they were perhaps more constrained on a singular topic like cost optimization. So we talk about money and cost. That's that's about it. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but it always revolves around cost and money and and and, and budgets, if you will. But for this, for WAF security, it was really an eye-opener for me when I first opened the build and deploy area as part of WAF security. And it, it casually says, for example, in build and deploy for, for governance, it says, establish a cross-functional DevOps platform team. Done. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a lot of work to establish this. So this bit, the build and deploy bit, even though it, it feels like the guidance is fairly short, it's just a couple of pages of data, but it's filled with, with stuff you really need to work on, like integrating scanning tools within your CI CD pipeline. So you need to select which tools to use, how to react if they find anything, how to mitigate those problems and perhaps external licensing and so on and so on. So there's a lot of stuff in build and deploy. So once you're done with design, at least have a look at this. I feel built and deploy is the bit where you actually need to start building and fixing and, and sort of re-architecting or reconfiguring what you already have once you've read through what build and deploy has to offer for you. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it's it's exactly like you say that some of these things, it has the most relevant information you can think about, but it's a framework. And I think that's coming back to keeping this in mind, using this as a framework in your organization is gold. It is going to help you establish so much better processes and routines if you don't have them in place already. And so I used to do this and I came back here and this is exactly what I was looking for. Like the the one-liner saying, hey, you need to plan resources and, and then how to harden them. All right, cool. How do I do that? Well, here's a couple of things and a couple of ideas. And then you realize, wow, we have gaps in our processes because we don't do X, Y, and Z. It means we are prone to these type of risks. All right, now we understand that. And then we get the links to go and explore more and kind of get that, bridge that gap. Then half a year from now or a year from now, coming back and doing an assessment or taking a look again, we might be able to take some of those or even all of the boxes off. So I absolutely love that opinionated guidance, but very clear and concise. And that's one of the kind of benefits of the Azure Well-Architective Framework, I think. So the monitor and remediate section, that's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's quoted on the on the website, like monitoring your systems regularly to maintain a high security posture is important. And you should know how to monitor and detect for vulnerabilities, weak configuration, and more stuff like that. So really, without jumping into details in all of these sections under there, the areas covered top of mind are tools. What security services and tools can you use to enhance your security posture? Azure resources. And here we talk about various services in Azure that have different monitoring capabilities. So really taking the time to understand what security monitoring mechanism you have in the Azure resource that you're using. Because we have, like taking a step back again, you have deployed a set of resources. Some people always think, let's get Defender for Cloud and let's put a firewall, a web application firewall, whatever, and then we're done. But each service in Azure comes with different types of security mechanisms. Take an Azure storage account. It has uh, encryption. You can bring your own key to encrypt data. And what type of data do you want to encrypt? Which portion of it do you need to encrypt? 
Like there's a lot of stuff and that's just one service. So for each service in Azure, you have like a plethora of different options for security monitoring and configuration. So that covers a little bit of that. There's one section for logging and alerts. So things like central security log management, enabling audit logging, why that's important, collecting security logs and so on. And then you have review and remediate, which is a section talking about like diving into Defender for Cloud and how to remediate security risks. Because again, coming back to logs and alert, the previous section, you can configure a lot of logs, a lot of alerts. And what happens when you get those alerts triggered and your inbox now has 5,000 emails overnight? Because I've been there. And that's to me, that's called alert fatigue. You know, you get 5,000 critical alerts and then you have to manually wade through them to figure out, are they actually critical? Are they actually actionable? Is this something I need to tend to? Or is this something that will automatically resolve? Like there are so many considerations for setting up a successful kind of alerting structure. And that's not always easy. So at least there are some things in here talking about that. So those are like the top of mind sections for me, tools, Azure resources, logs and alerts, review and remediate. But there's a couple of more sections in there, isn't it? Yeah, so beyond these sort of three main areas, there's, there's just a single page on trade-offs. And I find this is actually surprisingly valuable because the design, the build and deploy, and the monitor and remediate, they sort of hold your hand and say, consider this, think about this, think about that. And they are more or less technical bits. The trade-offs is, I would say, it's a bit more academic in enforcing you to think between security and reliability, security and cost optimization. And I often run into these sort of problems with, with customer projects. For example, there might be a requirement on using a capability, which is part of the Azure API management, the premium tier, but that might be too expensive for the project. For just one capability, we opt not to go for the premium one. So we do a trade-off on, on cost optimization and we might not get that security capability in place, but then we remediate that with something else. Perhaps we implement a custom bit of, of a custom API or a custom bit of controls in between, or then we use a third party solution that fits the bill without needing us to use the API management, the premium tier. But that requires you to consider, you to research more on that specific capability and also to think through the trade-offs. So this is just one page. It's not as condensed as the three other main areas because they have a checklist and each one of those items in the checklist requires you to think through and actually pull together a lot of data to understand which way to go. But this is more about just putting you to think, well, if we want to optimize cost, what are we missing out if we want to go for maximum security, for example? Toby, do you, do you have anything top of mind on a real-world scenario for trade-offs that you've done, perhaps? I've, I've got a, quite a few of them. So when we talk about security and reliability, there is a trade-off here with like poor curation practices that can lead to reliability issues. And to put that into practice, what that means is, if it's like it's a one-liner saying poor curation practice can lead to reliability issues, and then some expansion on that. That has happened to many of us. And that can be, for example, if you have an Azure AD app and you have credentials on that app 
a certificate or a secret and that expires. That could mean that your production tenant goes down or your application goes down or your SaaS service, whatever you're building can go down. Even if it's only for five minutes or if it's for three days, it doesn't matter. Reliability will suffer. So if reliability is a top priority for you, then you have to invest in proper key rotation practices so you can avoid having reliability issues. That means ensuring your code and your infrastructure can handle rotation seamlessly. Often you can automate that. Another thing is expired service principles. Coming back to the same thing with reliability, a lack of security governance around that can impact the, the app reliability. And coming back to the point where reliability might be a top tier kind of issue for you. Security and cost optimization. I have a lot of examples. I've, I've made a couple of notes for, for some of those. Like when you have this regulatory compliance that we talked about uh, saying uh, your services, they need to exist in multiple regions. And this is something that we did. And because you have to have a backup of data and data need to be backed up in different regions and you know all this stuff. And there might be compliance, regula regulatory compliance saying you need to, to have some data in the US and some data in Australia, some data in Europe for legal reasons, because the data are not, it's not allowed to leave the US, right? And the data in Europe is not allowed to uh, leave Europe. So for different reasons, you can have some data isolation. And and that, you know, requiring that kind of full replicated environment in another region for data, uh, data sovereignty reasons, it'll be more expensive. So coming back to security versus cost optimization, you cannot optimize costs in all the ways possible if security is a top tier priority for you. The same way as if you want all the security, it's not going to lower your cost. Quite the contrary, it's going to increase your cost. So that's always a, like a trade-off. And as a rule, you don't compromise on security, but instead find kind of the justification of that cost to keep the data safe. And I have some lessons learned from the field experience that I have here, like your total cost of ownership, your TCO, it may actually go down if you buy the premium security features. Right? Because then you don't have to spend all the time, you know, you don't have to spend the same amount of time on the security aspect as you would otherwise. And I believe this is like a key consideration for anything in the cloud, whether this is enhanced security, added workflow automation, or something else. So we shouldn't neglect the operational cost for developers, IT operations, security operations, and so on. And personally, I'd rather see that we enable like the enhanced feature to a higher bill if we can save money on the bottom line in our cloud TCO, so the total cost of ownership. And that's usually a discussion that we did on a CXO level to kind of justify the increased cloud spend. But let's say that you increase the cloud spend by $5,000 a month or a year, whatever. If you save on, on your TCO on resources, on developer costs, on IT operations, on security operations, and so on, just by enabling these things, you get everything built in. If you then save 25K, then all of a sudden this cloud spend of 5K is pretty okay, right? It's it, it's becoming negligible. So I think that's something to keep in mind. And, and this maybe floats more into the cloud adoption framework, thinking more about roles and responsibilities and the bigger discussions for cost management and things like that, and go beyond the scope of WAF and workload optimization for security and cost. But I... I Definitely think this is something you should keep in mind. So thinking security versus cost as a trade-off, all of the things I just mentioned, super important. But do think about your total cost of ownership. And if you haven't made a calculation on that or even a you know a rough estimation, start looking into that. 
because it's not just the Azure bill that's costing you money. It's how many people are managing your Azure cloud estate. How much time are you spending upgrading stuff? How many hours are you spending trying to protect things in a non-native or non-built-in way? Are you trying to build in more security features in your product as opposed to just deploying the premium tier security feature in Azure? Things like that will heavily impact the security versus cost kind of consideration or trade-off. But I, I can go on and on about this. I've, I've done this in the field quite some times, done a lot of these discussions, and I cannot stress it enough that security is always a top priority, but you can justify the cost. But there is also a trade-off where some of the resources you have may not need the premium features, which is also okay. As long as you, at the end of the day, have a justification saying, we allow kind of a lower security tier on this one because reason X, Y, Z, and you can justify that, perfectly fine. If you just say, we want to save costs, and you don't have the numbers for your TCO, I wouldn't accept that. If you want to lower the cost by reducing your cloud spend, I definitely get that. But if you can show that your TCO will go down, then we're in agreement. This might be something we want to look at. But if you have an adverse effect for lowering the cost in the cloud, means you have to spend a lot more time trying to manage it, then you're not maybe seeing the full picture. And this is something we've seen in the field a lot. But now I'm just going on and on about that. So so back to you, Yusi. What's your thoughts on that? Really good insights here. Um, let me pick on one example. You mentioned the four key rotation practices, which often lead to reliability issues. What I'm often seeing, not always, but often seeing, is that to avoid this, let's create our keys so that they expire every five years. You don't really have the poor rotation practice anymore. Because <laughs> Let's hide you the need, problem. <laughs> yes, you don't need to rotate the key anymore except once every five years. I'm struggling with this uh, at times when I'm working with certain third-party environments that use the Let's Encrypt certificates. And they, by default, they expire every three months. So so this brings interesting problems in, in renewing those every every 10 or or 11 weeks uh, of the year and that often does not fall optimally with with your own schedule at the same time Alrighty, um so so vav security it's it's super interesting but it also takes time to sort of ingest all of the information in here my advice here would be that have a quick skim through everything in here and then focus on the bits that are most relevant for you. So for me, it's often been design and monitor and remediate. remediate. Those two categories are the ones that I typically gravitate to. And monitor, uh, sorry, uh, build and deploy is often something I work with quite a bit less, but I still try to keep track of what, what, what's happening over there as well. So what should somebody do who's perhaps listening on this episode, having a look at WAF? What next? Anything else they can they can do to better understand the offerings? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, good advice. Going just aka.ms/waf. But then there are like two things that sticks out that I've done myself in the past as well. One is the Azure Well-Architected Framework Review Assessment. So that's part of the Microsoft assessments. And I think we even talked about having an episode in the near future about Microsoft assessments. So we might touch on that. 
And that is actually tying directly back to all the principles in the WAF security pillar. So if you do that assessment, it's going to ask you questions like, how are you dealing with this specific security aspect in your workload? And then you answer those questions and you answer that for all the different areas. You can do it across all the pillars. It's, a, it's many questions to answer, but it will give you a fairly good indicator of where you are in your cloud kind of a state, like your cloud posture, if you will. So one of the steps, definitely answer the security section to get insights on the identified gaps and then maybe follow the guidance to improve things. The other thing is there's a training path available in Microsoft Learn. So I think that's called Build Great Solutions with the Microsoft Azure Well-Architected Framework. And specifically in there, because there's a load of stuff in there. In there, there's a module, a training module, which takes about one hour to complete. I think you can do it quicker. It's called Microsoft Azure Well-Architected Framework Security. So it's training, Microsoft Learn, on the security pillar, which is super cool. So if you think that, well, I don't have time to read all the documentation, which is a fair point and everyone understands that, go to the MS Learn website. We'll put the link in the show notes. Go to that, take a look at that security module for WAF security. It's one hour of your time, and it's going to give you the brief overview that you need to understand what's covered in, in uh, WAF security. I really like the uh, the WAF review assessment that you mentioned. It's it's quite lengthy if you go through everything it has to offer, and some of the questions are quite loaded in the sense that do you have a separate team for managing security issues as part of your DevOps process? Well, you're sitting down perhaps with a customer You'll ask this and they go, yeah, maybe we have, let me let me come back to you next week when I've sort of reorganized my thoughts on this topic. And that's just one question. So if you're feeling it solo for your your own team or own company, it's it's a fairly, fairly quick exercise. But once you go to the enterprise environment, it can take a couple of days to get that filled out. And then you get the insights on where should you focus next, because it sort of forces you to assess what do you have in play right now so that you know what you don't have in play right now so that you know when to focus on those. So in summary, go and take a look at, at WAF security model. It's a great resource with a lot of information. So there's a lot of knowledge in there. and. I always try, when I open this, I always try to go with sort of low expectations on my existing knowledge so that I wouldn't be too proud to read any of the guidance. So if the guidance says, please only have a single enterprise identity for all of your users, it's easy to scoff and say, yeah, of course we have that. But do you really? So let's, let's, let's find out. So I try to go with a clean slate so that I'm actually getting some value out from this. Anything else, Toby, you would add as a sort of a summary on VAF security? No, I, I think you covered it well. It's just like uh, using it as a, fund, a foundational piece of your journey to a stronger security posture and, and just doing that continuously uh, helps a lot. Agreed. Alrighty, the last bit, the unexpected question. And I did check last week, I did ask you, Toby. So this week, you get to ask me the unexpected question. I have a very important question on my mind. It's been mm -hmm. bugging me for some time. And the question is, if peanut butter was not called peanut butter, what would it be called? 
okay, this is this is unexpected. In the 1980s, when I when I when I was a kid and I was growing up, we didn't really have what you would later come to associate as peanut butter, the Nutella brand. I I'm not sure if it's US based or, or European. Anyway, but eventually in my teenage years, I grew up to understand that peanut butter equals Nutella. And then later as an adult, I went to a real store to say, what else do they have? And they have the real stuff. So if it wasn't called the peanut butter, I feel it should be called what we call it in in Finnish. And literally translating the Finnish term for peanut butter, it becomes the ground nut butter or the earth nut butter. And it doesn't really tell you anything because it, you don't associate that with the chocolate style flavor of a good peanut butter. But I feel it should be called the earth nut butter. Earth nut butter. Yeah. I'm going to start calling it that. <laughs> All let's go with that. All Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you again next week on Wednesday. All right. See you then.